Hello and welcome to the Confession Box podcast, where the eclectic meets the eccentric in the hope of enlightenment, presented by Gary O'Sullivan and Brandon Scott. Today we're joined by respected editor, journalist and columnist Michael Kelly, who is editor of the Irish Catholic newspaper. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be here. Michael, uh, we're just going to get stuck into this. Um, it's 40 degrees in Rome and, and temperatures are rising. And yet we have an 86 year old pontiff who doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. And uh, he's recently published his list of attendees for the Synod in October. Uh, any standout names in that list? Anything unusual about that list? Yeah, Pope Francis has this habit during the summer when a lot of the journalists in Rome, as you say, like to get out of the city to uh, rest by the seaside and dropping these bombs in terms of uh, major lists. So what he's given us now is the participants who are going to be at the Synod of Bishops in October. Now, that's the first installment of this process that he's talking about called a Synod on Synodality. Basically, how does the church become more co-responsible? How do the bishops and the people of God assist the Pope in the governance of the church? So what's interesting about this, because, you know, Pope Francis, he's a, he's a clever man. He's a he's a Jesuit. He uh, he knows how to work things in his own direction. Uh, he has appointed 50 additional people to this, um, his own special picks, because if you look at somewhere like the United States, uh, the bishops conference in the United States have typically under this pontificate chosen leaders who are, if not publicly hostile to Pope Francis, certainly uh, they're skeptical about his reform agenda. So what the Pope has done is in his list of invitees, he's tried to correct that a little bit. So you're seeing Cardinal Blaise Supic, for example. You're uh, uh, you're seeing Wilton Gregory from um, uh, from Washington. You're seeing Bob McElroy from San Diego. These bishops who would all be associated very much with the Francis agenda, and consistently when they stand for election to be elected to the leadership of the USCCB, the Catholic Bishops Conference, there they don't get elected. A clear sign that the majority of American bishops uh, are not supportive of the agenda of Pope Francis. Some other interesting picks on it uh, are, for example, someone like Father Jim Martin, who would very much be known for his outreach to the the gay and lesbian bisexual community in the United States. In fact, he's been dialoguing with Pope Francis about this, and Pope Francis has been encouraging him in that ministry. And what's really interesting about that is Father Martin takes a lot of heat from some reactionary voices within the church who think that, you know, he really shouldn't be involved in this ministry at all. So I think that's another endorsement uh, from Pope Francis on this. An interesting pick, which I think will surprise many people because he has made no secret of uh, his dislike yeah, for synodality. Speaking of reactionary voices. It's Cardinal Gerhard Muller. Gerhard Muller was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, appointed by Benedict XVI and then continued uh, for a little while under Pope Francis. But he has certainly spoken out and criticised Pope Francis. So Francis has invited him in there as well. Fascinatingly, he is the only voice from Germany that the Pope has brought in on his special list. The Pope has been very critical of the synodal process that is going on in Germany. He's described it as an elite project. So I think the fact that he hasn't uh, included anyone from that project is very interesting because when you're looking at lists from Pope Francis, you have to actually read it for who's missing from it as much as who's actually on it. So uh, looking at synod then, you have you have Cardinal Muller, who's certainly not a fan of Pope Francis. You've got Jim Martin and you've got a lot of liberal bishops and cardinals as well. Uh, so the, the chess pieces have been set on the board, and this is probably the uh, you know possibly the major achievement of this pontificate. What's the Pope trying to achieve by bringing these disparate voices together? Is he hoping to have some kind of concordat at the end of it, or 
Well, I think ultimately what the Pope is hoping to achieve, this is the entire leitmotif of his pontificate. He actually wants the church to find a new way of being the church, a way that's more co-responsible, uh, a way that's less kind of hierarchical, that's less top-down, that's less them and us between clergy and laity. So that's the ultimate project. He sees synodality as being a hugely important part of that because Francis believes in terms of church reform that actually reform doesn't happen from the center. Reform comes from the peripheries, from the margins. So you bring all these voices in. And as he said himself in Rio de Janeiro, just a few months after he was elected, come together and make some noise. He actually doesn't fear disputes. He doesn't fear people disagreeing. I mean, I've covered synods of bishops in Rome for over 20 years. I mean, under John Paul II, under Benedict XVI, they were snorefests. I mean, most bishops brought work from their diocese that they hadn't caught up on for many months. And they actually did that during the synod process. Under Pope Francis, they actually become real forums for dialogue and disagreement. And you see, Francis, he doesn't fear the disagreement. But what we've seen from him in the past, when he thinks the disagreement is getting out of control or when he thinks it's been divisive, he stops. He exercises his supreme papal authority, as he did so in the Amazon Synod. There was a lot of talk at the time of the Amazon Synod that he's going to permit married priests. My hunch is that the Pope is in favour of married priests in the limited circumstances that were discussed in the Amazon Synod. But he discerned that it was divisive and therefore he drew a line under it and he said, we're not moving anywhere in that. So I think he wants this uh, to be a forum where all the different voices can be heard, the conservative voices, the liberal voices, and actually try to listen to each other. And at least because keep in mind, this synod is not about the hot button issues. This synod is actually about synodality, which might remind people of the early days of the peace process when we had the talks about talks. Uh, but that this is talks about talks. He's trying to get the mechanism around synodality first in the hope then that it makes the hot button issues easier to discuss in the future. So I suppose new appointments, it's, what's the, what, it's what the church has become synonymous with in recent weeks. I suppose turning now to Pope Francis' recent appointments of 21 new cardinals to the College of Cardinals, how have these, appointed, how have these new appointments been greeted, Michael? Are there any surprises or, dare I say, even disappointments there? Yeah, Pope Francis has appointed cardinals at breakneck speed ever since he was elected, almost every year. If you look back at his 20th century predecessors, they tended to appoint cardinals every three to four years. Uh, Pope Francis uh, really understands the importance of increasing the membership of the College of Cardinals to cardinals in his image and likeness, because, you know, he has discerned anything quite correctly that at the last conclave, the cardinals uh, believed that what he was saying about reform of the church, about the future of the church, that that's the direction that they wanted to go. So he himself is using his authority now to, um, to, 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 to put a stamp on that. One interesting cardinal, of course, and no great surprise because of his recent appointment to head the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, is Cardinal uh, Victor Manuel Fernandez, who is a very, very close uh, friend of Pope Francis. He's a very strong influence on Pope Francis. Uh, the strong suspicion is that he has ghost written most of the major documents of uh, this papacy. So Francis is bringing him to Rome to be in the, uh, the doctrinal uh, dicastery. An appointment that really fascinates me is the uh, appointment of the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem. Uh, that's uh, Archbishop uh, Pierre Battista Pizzaballa. That's, to me, a huge shot in the arm for the small Christian community in the Holy Land. And it's very interesting looking at the editorials in the Israeli newspapers about it. They have, I think, correctly read it. Because for the last three to four years, uh, the new Cardinal Pizzaballa has been talking constantly about how the Christians in the Holy Land are being treated badly, this more extremist uh, government that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is heading now. And 
this sense that Christians are now being treated as guests mm. in the Holy Land or visitors in the Holy Land. They're not guests, they're not visitors. And the patriarch has been very, very strong in pointing that out. So I think we're seeing an endorsement of, of that from Pope Francis. Another one, uh, I think Pope Francis really has a capacity for mischief. He, he enjoys that a lot. And if you look, the uh, papal nuncio to the United States is Archbishop Christophe Pierre. He is constantly scolding the American bishops for not being more in line with Pope Francis. And you know, normally nuncios scold bishops in the background as all very schoolboy-like, but he scolds them in public, and including at their own assemblies. So I think the fact that the Pope has appointed him as a cardinal as well is saying, look, this is my guy in the United States. I mean, he is the uh, authentic interpreter of what I'm saying, of the message of this papacy. So I'm making him a cardinal to underline that, because it's very it's very rare for diplomats to be made cardinals. So scold, the scolding will continue. <laughs> I think the scolding will continue, and I think you know Pope Francis may well do a little bit of scolding during the Synod himself in October. Speaking of scolding, um, uh, Archbishop Fernandez, he's had... He's had a difficult start, hasn't he? Uh, he sure has. Um, I mean, he sure has. There have been a couple of major issues. I mean, as is common in this circumstance, the moment he was appointed, people start trawling the internet, reading mm. through all of his uh, various documents and articles and, uh, and and pronouncements. And, you know, there's a colourful one people were looking at there that he wrote about uh, kissing when he was uh, a theologian in his early He's a 30s. Lover, not a fighter. <laughs> I think he himself has said perhaps he, w- he wouldn't write it again. But look, he was, uh, he, he was a young theologian but the the much more serious one i suppose uh, and precisely because the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith still has competence in dealing with this juggernaut of an issue of clerical sexual abuse which just goes from country to country uh cardinal elect fernandez will be in charge of it and he himself has recently spoken about uh, mishandling of allegations in 2019 he for example he didn't remove uh, a priest from ministry even when more and more victims or alleged victims came forward to uh, say that they had been abused by that priest. So I think he was on a learning curve, and and the Pope's kind of backed him on that. Who the Pope, who also has been on a learning curve. Remember the Cuban victims that were kind of disbelieved. But is it reasonable to say a learning curve in 2019? Like? I mean, that's the issue. I mean, if you go back now, could you say that a bishop in the 1970s or the bishop in the in the 1980s may not have known how to handle these things mm-hmm. properly? I would think there's some credibility to that. I mean, I would listen to that. 2019, we're talking, what, three years ago? Mm. Having, I mean, Cardinal Fernandez is a very well-traveled man. Mm. He knows the situation of the church around the world. He has friends all around the world. So he cannot be unaware of the damage that this issue has done to the credibility of the church around the world. And yet, given the opportunity in 2019 to side with the victims or to side with this priest and keep him in his parish, that's what he chose to do. And he's saying now, he's contrite about it. He's saying... I, I certainly wouldn't act that way now. My The way I acted back then was insufficient. It depends what you mean by back then. Is back then really four years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and he, he also has been told by the Pope that he... That he's not, he's not spent too much time on child abuse. Now that uh, you know, Mary Collins uh, was 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 quoted in the Irish Catholic newspaper saying that that worries her because it's not like the church can kind of sit on his hands and say, "Look, we've got this right." Um, but he he seems to, he's going to have le- more to do with theologians than he is going to to do with abuse. Yeah, Francis has specifically asked him to spend less time concentrating on the abuse side of it. Uh, the Holy Father has pointed out that there's a specific section for that now headed by. A very fine Irishman, uh, John Kennedy, who's in charge of that disciplinary division. But yet the prefect is still in charge of that. Uh, that department can't do anything by itself. It is completely dependent on uh, the prefect to sign all of its orders, to sign all of its decrees. So uh, 
uh, I, I see what the Pope is saying. He's saying, look, the most important part of the ministry of this office is guarding the faith. So give more of your attention to that side of guarding the faith, to encouraging dialogue with theologians, to where people are in error, to to correct that, but to try to do that in a spirit of dialogue. But I would agree with Mary Collins. I think it is a worry if the eye is going to be taken off the ball on this issue, because it is certainly not the case that in Rome there's best practice on this issue. I think we can with confidence say that there is in Ireland, but that's not the case in Rome, and we've seen that on numerous occasions. Yeah, yeah. My biggest fear as well would be, I suppose, systemic complacency there. So, just to clarify, who exercises the disciplinary powers now contained in the DDF? So, for example, and this has been a recurring issue in Ireland over the last decade, let's say in the context of um, a censored theologian or maybe a reinstated theologian, who would presently oversee this now? Well, see, the day-to-day work of the dicastery is controlled by the prefect. Uh, the prefect, if you like, is the CEO. But actually, the board of the dicastery, if I can call it that way, is actually the members of the cardinals who come together on a monthly basis. They meet on a monthly basis. They're the ones that ultimately make all the decisions then that are rubber-stamped by the prefect and then brought to the Pope. So, uh but on a day-to-day basis to decide whether or not to investigate one particular theologian, whether or not to worry about one particular article, that comes down to the to the prefect. I mean, obviously working with his uh, his advisors and, uh, you know, when you're a prefect of the Roman Curia, you have many advisors, some of them sought, some of them less so, but people are very willing to offer their opinion. But ultimately, the issue of disciplining theologians and, for example, the case of Father Tony Flannery, for example, the Irish Redemptorist priest who's been out of ministry now for for many years over controversial articles going all the way back to Cardinal William Leveda who is now deceased who was head of the uh, congregation the then congregation for the doctrine of the faith the now dicastery for the doctrine of the faith that will still still rest with, uh, with, with the prefect and it is interesting if you look at the letter because some of the Pope's critics are trying to accuse the Pope of diminishing the role of this office in the very first line of his letter to the new Cardinal he says guarding the faith is the most important part of this dicastery's role it did. It, it did. That letter did also say, you know, that there was a sense given that maybe some of the excesses of the past were wrong or well let's look at the history of the dicastery because the dicastery started out its life as the holy roman inquisition and then that later was transferred into the uh the congregation of the index which the what the index it's referring to was the index of forbidden books which existed up until the 1960s it transferred then into the holy office and eventually then uh from paul the sixth to john paul the second to the congregation for the doctrine of the faith now interestingly to me and uh, these things don't happen by accident. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has traditionally referred to itself and been referred to by other people in Rome as La Suprema, the, the most important congregation. In naming the cardinals, Cardinal Fernandez was named as the third cardinal. Traditionally, the CDF prefect would be named as the first cardinal. So I think that's the Pope trying to subtly say this is one congregation among others. The emphasis is not, is has shifted somewhat. I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. These things don't happen by accident in Rome. Michael, very exciting time in the life of the church. Now we have World Youth Day coming up it's a time to energize and mobilize young catholics i know you'll be going as well so you'll have that personal experience there so it's coming up on the first of august and is arguably the most anticipated because of the brief reprieve and uh, during covid so it's the first to, to take place after covid with the recent portuguese cardinal elect americo aguiar remarking that the premise of world youth day is to contradictorily not to evangelize youth you know, how, how worthwhile is this event and what purpose does it serve if youth are going to i suppose 
imbue their faith in a way. Ah, uh, Brandon, even I know that I'm not a young Catholic. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to be reporting on the World Youth Day. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to it. And again, th- that minor controversy has erupted about uh, evangelization and I think the point the Cardinal is trying to make is that this is not a doctrinal, a dogmatic exercise of trying to kind of uh, drill into people, you know, the Ten Commandments or the seven precepts of the church, but actually to an encounter with Christ. And Pope Francis speaks about this a lot, that the church's mission of evangelization is not about proselytism. It's not, it's not about getting bombs on seats. It's not about kind of filling up empty churches. It's about helping people to have that encounter with Christ, because actually things then naturally uh, flow from that. It'll be interesting to see whether or not World Youth Day has lost its momentum as a result of the pandemic. A lot of things have lost their momentum. We know that registration for it is down on previous World Youth Days. Part of that, I think, is down to the personality of Pope Francis. He doesn't interact with the young people in the way that John Paul II did, for example. John Paul II was a was a megastar at these events, and he loved every minute of it. You could see his old training as an actor coming out. Benedict, I think, did it through gritted teeth, but he tried to be... A bit of a showman tried to be kind of game for a laugh during it as well. Francis is much more serious to it, and that perhaps doesn't really appeal because there's three types of young people go to World Youth Day. There's very, very devout young people who are absolutely on fire with their faith. There's other young people who are kind of marginally interested in the faith. And then there are people who, well, you know what, Lisbon's nice to go to in August, so we're going to go. Their parents have given them the money. They're going to go to the World Youth Day in, in August. And the premise of it has always been trying to move some of the middle ground people into the more devout people and trying to move some of the peripheral people in into the middle and uh, the, but the real work of it has to happen when young people come home because the one thing that people have been and I've been to several World Youth Days is there's nothing for them in their parish when they come home they have this wonderful experience of going there and seeing actually the universality mm. of the church Catholics from all over the world mm. every flag you will see present yeah. in that vast congregation in Joy Park mm. in, uh, in, in, in Lisbon and then what's waiting on them when they get home so I think that's the huge challenge because if we learned one thing in the church in Ireland is that mass events with no backup are actually counterproductive. The papal visit of 1979, there was no meaningful pastoral program after the papal visit. So the bishops confidently assured themselves that the sign of 1.2 million people in Phoenix Park showed us that the faith actually is fine in Ireland. And we don't really need to worry. The backup Symbolic. is key. Otherwise, it's just razzmatazz. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. But hasn't the church, it's interesting with the World Youth Day, you know, and to get a million people or whatever to get to, but they don't seem to be able to trans, and you say about young people coming back to parishes, but parishes all around the world seem to have failed to Mm. engage young people in the synod listening process Mm. for whatever reason. And you mentioned three types of young people, but none of them seem to have, like the more traddy young people have just didn't want to be part of it and the others just didn't seem interested. Yeah. it's a huge challenge for the church with young people, isn't it? A huge challenge. I mean, looking through the various synod reports in from Ireland, the only young people who were engaged in it, by and large, were people who did it through school. school and children, uh, yeah, what, yeah, one, yeah. one would assume they did it in RE class, it and it was probably, it was an obligation. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, there were very, very few other young people. I mean, look, part of that is uh, part of that is just a feature of our our modern culture young people they're not as engaged in meetings as they were in the past look at things like trade union movement look at political party membership attends at meetings all down and that was uh, that was true ahead of the pandemic as well people live much more uh, solitary lives and i think that's difficult i think the huge challenge for the church because sometimes church people get into this idea that young people are all sitting around at home on a sunday morning thumping the kitchen table about how angry they are with the church over the lack of women priests or you know contraception or 
any of these issues. The huge challenge that, if we're willing to admit it, is that most younger people are indifferent to it. Uh, they're, they're, they're not really interested in church reform if the church uh, brought in all of the things that you know the synodal way in Germany for example is campaigning for tomorrow then I get no sense that our parishes would start to flood together with uh, with with younger people as well I mean parishes in Ireland with m- more uh, progressive priests if you like uh, have not shown themselves to be huge hotbeds of youth ministry no no absolutely not Michael uh, while we have you in our confession box uh, I think we won't ask for any major revelations. Only venial sins. <laughs> venial sins only. But I think with a man who, who, who is such a close watcher of Vatican politics and, and, and what's going on in the church, I think it would, it's important for us maybe to try and get a prediction from you. And I know journalists hate giving predictions, but um, what what is your prediction of France's game of chess? Is this Will it end up in checkmate? Or will he, would, will he be able to pull off like Jim Martin and... Uh, and Cardinal Muller like walking down the Garahi Road uh, <laughs> with, hand in, with like David Trimble and John Hume, you know, peace in our time. Uh, like wh- what? What is your prediction uh, for this? Or will it all get kicked out to 2024 and we'll have to wait another year for the sequel? Both. Uh, I think he will achieve what he wants to achieve in this. I think there will be a fair amount of harmony. I think there will be the disparate voices. What will be very interesting will be to watch on the fringes of the Synod because this is probably the first Synod of Bishops in which there will be so much external interest. Even now I'm getting invitations to all kinds of fringe events in Rome being organised by well-funded lobby groups on both sides of the these debates. So perhaps never before has there been so much external interest. I think the Pope will be able to try to hold that tension together. I think the very fact that come the end of October, when they are coming to vote on the resolutions, he will say, well, look, that's great. I'll see you all again next year. The fact that there is a round two uh, will also give people the opportunity to, to, to regroup. But I think the challenge for the Pope is to try to ensure that everyone understands his vision for synodality is that it's a permanent event that actually the meetings in Rome uh, become less and less important if actual real synodality is taking place in, in, in the parishes because ultimately if it's not happening in the parishes then what is going on in Rome is a sideshow because people look at that and they hear talk about openness and transparency and co-responsibility then they have an idea in their own local parish and the parish priest says no we're not doing that whether the people want to do it or not so synodality has got to translate down to, to the nuts and bolts for people and, and that's a job of work when you have uh, a lot of priests who are are tired and you know just really want to you know well well that's i think day. that's the learning from ireland in the synod process i mean priests by and large did not engage in the synod process in ireland but i think it's due to a lack of tiredness I mean, it's, it's not talking, a hostility it's not a hostility i was talking to a priest recently and he said look he said i could fill a folder with the number of forms that i have to fill out on a on a weekly basis and more actually to your point about young people he said to me if i wanted to bring a group of teenagers together to discuss synodality in the church i would have to get their parents to sign forms in triplicate now, mm. nobody's saying safeguarding is not important. Of course it is. Data protection is important. All of these things are important. But, but I think priest is going to have to do all that and as well as all these other duties. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Michael Kelly, thank you very much for coming in. Pleasure. We could talk to you all day, uh, but I think that's enough confession <laughs> in the confession box this week. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Thanks guys. Great experience. Thank you very much. Thanks.